tradition, the lunar calendar, winter's retreat, and certainly appreciate the fact that your month of January, well, I couldn't be here, and uh, everything seems to be going well. It's nice to know that I'm expendable. It's easy to think that the world will fall apart if I don't control it. <coughs> but that's not the way things are. And so I had this opportunity to go to Thailand and Malaysia and uh, I do enjoy both of those countries. Asia is like a kind of, I always feel very much at home in uh, Asian countries. And so having, I was in the Peace Corps in, in 1963 just when it was really beginning. And uh, I was in Peace Corps training when President Kennedy was assassinated, November of 63. And so that was a big shock <coughs> because I was uh, very much uh, inspired by President Kennedy in those days and the idea of going to uh, to an Asian country to work. Uh, the idea was to provide what they called middle-level manpower, which was the idea of filling in where jobs where the people didn't have the personnel to do so. So, of course, English teaching English was... I was an English teacher in Malaysia. I was assigned to Sabah and Sarawak, which uh, is now called Eastern Malaysia. And there are the two British, were British colonies on the island of Borneo. And I was there for two years in a very paradisical place called Simporna. And then uh, after that came to, went to Thailand and became a monk. Hadn't been back for 42 years or so, and uh, 43 years. And of course, I always had these very pleasant memories of my life in this uh, tropical paradise. And like most memories of the past, the, the realities of daily life are not present. You remember the, usually the, the more pleasant aspects. And what I always remembered was uh, how beautiful it was and had a pleasant enough job teaching uh, English in a primary school, Chinese school, and pleasant company. But still, they, in spite of all the uh, pleasing aspects of this 
idyllic life I was leading, I still suffered um, a lot because of just the negative thought habits that I'd acquired. And I had my 30th birthday in Semporna. So the word Semporna is actually from the Sanskrit Sempurna, which means perfection. I thought that was interesting to live in a place called perfection. And then the imperfection was really my mind. As I grasped these negative thoughts, the critical mind. And the critical mind, of course, is uh, one that is, uh, tend, it can go outward towards others, like picking up on what you don't like and, and uh, criticizing everything. But my tendency was uh, to put, to direct this criticism inwards. So I was, uh, I was kind of stuck with this habit, thinking habit of criticizing myself. And so every, every little thing, every mistake I ever made or thought I made or whatever would become exaggerated in, with these critical thoughts. So there was a lot of self-loathing, uh, disparagement. And this was not due to anyone's fault. It was just uh, I realized it was a habit of mine. Uh, uh, maybe a character tendency or vipaka kama, whatever. So even in paradise, uh, I could create a hell realm due to just my own uh, thinking. So what can you do when you're 30 years old? Uh, on my 30th birthday, I realized my youth was gone, really. <laughs> and uh, or going very fast and uh, 30 more years uh, of living in, in, in this with this mindset with this critical mind was uh, appalling to me the idea of having to spend 30 more years I didn't know what to do about it you know how to get out of this habit and so the um, the thing that the, the one thing that really inspired me at this at this time, the only thing I had in my life that gave me any hope or any inspiration was Buddhism, and so I followed this. Uh, living in uh, Southeast Asia, you're in the, the Theravadan world, and I knew nothing about Theravada before that. I'd been mainly interested in Zen Buddhism as we kind of ticked it up through. Uh, the California translations of Japanese Zen uh, texts. And so uh, I'd had that kind of introduction for many years towards Buddhism, but Theravada I knew nothing about. So I had the op opportunity living in Sabah to uh, go to a country like Thailand, which was, you know, easy to get to from there. And... Uh, which is a Theravadan country. And of course, when I, after two years, uh, it was a two-year contract, I, I went straight off to Thailand, started meditating, became a Samanera in 1966. 1967 became a bhikkhu. Took the high road in Asia. 
and that's when I met the Lung Po Cha. So I went to Malaysia with the two friends from this Peace Corps time. One was Bob Schmidt, who we trained together in the same training group in Hawaii. And then the following year, uh, Donna came, and she, st- she was assigned to the same town of Semporna as I was. So Donna and Bob have both become Buddhists, interested in Buddhism, and uh, so we all decided we'd go together uh, back to Saba uh, just to see what it was like, because I had never returned, never been back to the place. And Ajahn Panyasaro invited him to join us. So there were the four of us. We flew, uh, Ajahn Panyasaro and I went, came to, went to Thailand for a few days and then to Kuala Lumpur. <clears throat> Back in 1966, uh, in Kuala Lumpur, I remember uh, visiting there before I ordained in uh, the capital of Malaysia. And uh, the, the Chinese element in uh, Sabah and in Malaya at that time were mainly uh, like traditional Chinese uh, interpretations of Buddhism mixed with culture and Taoism and whatnot. So I was not particularly inspired by the Chinese Buddhism I saw in Malaysia. But this time when we uh, we went to Kuala Lumpur, we stayed with Chinese uh, laymen who uh, and all and, the, and he invited his friends, family uh, every, both evenings we were there and uh, there's tremendous interest in Theravada Buddhism which was very pleasing to see and the, so in Malaya in the country of Malaya itself there's a, a noticeable interest, increasing interest in Theravada Buddhism among the Chinese Malaysians and they're interested in meditation they oftentimes invite monks from Thailand, uh, from the uh, forest tradition, Ajahn Man tradition, to visit. And so that was inspiring to see this, this growth and interest in, in Malaya itself. And then we flew to uh, Kota Kinabalu, which is the capital city of Sabah state, which was previously known as North Borneo. And when I lived there, it was called Jesselton. It had a nice English name. And they've changed it to Kota Kinabalu. And it's in a very beautiful area, uh, naturally beautiful with a harbor. But uh, in 1964, when I first went there, it was a bit of a dumpy city. It, it had been completely destroyed in the Second World War and rebuilt but uh, it had no kind of inspiring buildings or parks in it. But this time, when going there, I was quite impressed by the uh, attractiveness, the beauty of uh, Kota Kinabalu. So you see the material progress of this state that I lived in 44 years ago, when it had just been released from the British colonial office into the uh, Federation of Malaysia. And so when I lived there, it was still like a colonial country. 
All the British civil servants were still there, operating there the two years that I lived there. And now, of course, it's materially progressed with roads and, and mo modernity. Not, not to the uh, level of uh, Malaya itself, but certainly uh, considerably changed from what I remember 40 years ago. So the, Borneo was, uh, uh, it had never been affected by the Ice Age, you see. So it, it was famous for its tropical forests, jungles, and, and that where they always had all kind of unusual plant life and bird life, insect life, animal life that had probably been before, you know, from the previous, before the Ice Age. And so there are a lot of species, a lot of life in Borneo that uh, that you wouldn't find anywhere else. And so it was rather sad to see that modernity has, uh, as they've cut down the jungles and planted uh, oil palm tree plantations everywhere. So we drove from Kota Kinabalu up through uh, to the to the famous mountain Kinabalu which is the highest mountain in Southeast Asia. And I climbed this mountain years ago before I became a monk. Um, and it's, a, it's not a volcanic mountain, it's a, like a huge rock, a, a jagged appearance. It has a very kind of like shark's teeth top. And, and, and it's very uh, kind of impressive looking mountain. So we, we went there, and, but this time I had no uh, no desire to climb it, and neither did the others. I don't know about Ajahn Panyasaro, but uh, he was the young young one. But uh, the three oldies, we just liked looking at it. So <laughs> that was a, that was interesting change because usually I used to be the kind that as soon as I see something like that, I want to climb up. But I had no no inclination of that order. Now Sabe is a very is naturally quite beautiful state, and a uh, lot of resources and and beaches and mountains and whatnot. So we drove all the way to Semporna, which when I lived there before, there was no road. You could only get to this this little port on the east coast of Saba by steamship. Uh, they used to have this uh, British steamship service from Singapore, so you could uh, board the steamship in Singapore and then sail to Kuching and in Sarawak and then Miri and then what was known as Jesselton, now Kota Kinabalu, up around the coast of Borneo to the other side, uh, going toward the east coast to Sandakan and then to Semporna which was always very pleasant because these British steamships were very uh, pleasant way to travel. Uh, it took, uh, you know, a week to get there. <coughs> but now the, the road uh, cut through the jungle goes, you can drive, you know, to Semporna from Kota Kinabalu. So it was quite, uh, it's also the rainy season there. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, generally we had very good weather. 
we're going to Semporna then was you could see, you know, it had changed, become more like a resort. It uh, has these islands off the coast. They're famous for scuba diving, and uh, Sipidan is quite world famous now, the island that is especially beautiful near Semporna. So Semporna has become a kind of place where people go from to uh, scuba dive. And they have a five-star hotel there, and and a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, and they have, and the place has uh, grown considerably from what it was when I lived there. So you see the change, uh, uh, progress, material progress, and yet in some ways, it, I'm glad I lived there 40 years ago. I could see it when it was still fairly primitive and and uh, on not too badly damaged by modernity. I also felt a kind of tawdriness of the whole scene, you know, the, the meaninglessness of tourism and just life in general, of people living their lives, making money, and uh, the material progress, and then the problems, social problems, uh, immigration problems, they have uh, uh, people coming in from Philippines and Indonesia trying to settle in Sabah. And so you hear the same complaints about illegal entry and unlawful entry and immigration and whatnot, of this movement of human beings that is inevitable, you know, ever since, you know, you, just, if you read the study the history of Europe and it's all about migration. One tribe, one group migrating and overcoming, overpowering another group. So where does it all end? You know, what is, what is the purpose of human life and, and what, does it have any meaning? And is it, is this material progress the, the uh, sumum bonum of of, of uh, this planetary experience. So we each have our own Mercedes-Benz and laptop computer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is a story of success. But also they have uh, built, built a, a beautiful mosque in Semporna and, and they, they've also built a Chinese temple which didn't exist. Very nice, very beautiful temple. But still, uh, in, when, when I was there before, when I was young, I found everything exotic and new and interesting. So even the, you know, even the poverty, or well, that fascinated me. I loved going to the kampongs and the villages and, and uh, just kind of mingling with the people. But this time I noticed that, that I didn't have such an interest. Uh, it just seemed slightly kind of dilapidated and, and uh, dirty and, and rather boring, actually. Just uh, modern progress as, it, uh, as it's affected this little town. I used to have dreams when I was there of wanting to stay there, didn't want to leave. But after going back to Singapore, I was glad I left. <laughs> <laughs>
is interesting because when I, I always like these, these uh, like beaches and seaside. So when I went to Thailand in 1966, I had this, this idea of, of uh, becoming a monk and living by the seaside because uh, Thailand has beautiful uh, uh, beaches and whatnot. That's, of course, very famous now for tourism. But the irony of it, the more I tried to manipulate my life so I could end up on a beach with a palm tree in a, in a monk's uh, robe, I ended up in northeast Thailand, which is, uh, is not particularly beautiful. Uh, and uh, living there for ten years in Ubor and Rajatani. And uh, there the, the forests were a bit scrubby and there were no kind of majestic mountains or or beautiful islands to go scuba diving. There's only a kind of flat uh, um, plains, rice fields, and and scrubby forests. And yet, strangely enough, it was in Ubon that, that, that I actually uh, came to terms with this habit of self-criticism. And I can see, you know, so uh, Ubon, uh became the place more of a paradise for me than Samporna because it was living in this in this forest monasteries in uh, northeast Thailand that actually uh, penetrated the causes of suffering could see the what I was doing and how to to uh, release myself from this habit how to resolve these these mental habits emotional habits and of course, it wasn't about material progress because, uh, in um, even now, and like when I remember uh, first going to Wat Ba Pong Ajahn Charles Monastery, it was very basic kind of place, uh, you know, with no luxuries whatsoever, just no electricity, and everything was, you know, well. We had to draw water from wells, and and uh, there was no kind of middle class luxuries whatsoever and of course I'm from a kind of middle class background where you take electricity and certain things for granted but living in uh, the forest monastery in Uborn I found I didn't really mind uh, you know the, the the lack of the luxury or the the primitive lifestyle because the real emphasis was on the mind and learning how, you know, really examining, investigating consciousness, the reality of consciousness, not just trying to improve the material world around myself, or trying to seek uh, a better place. You know, one could, I could, if I compared Uborn with uh, Semporna, I could, you know, say, well, I'd like to live by, you know, Sippy Down Island, beautiful island, the sea, coral reefs and palm trees and white sand beaches and sounds like paradise. But instead, the, the real change, the real release came not through seeking external uh, paradise, but changing, the uh, studying, investigating my own conscious experience of life while living within that context of the Thai forest monastery. So that was a real challenge because coming from a background which was very kind of uh, hedonistic, 
where in the California scene of my generation was definitely, you know, to seek pleasure and happiness and do what you want and say what you felt and, and uh, you know, emphasize how important you are to, to demand rights and, and to self-expression, freedom of expression and, and all the liberal uh, attitudes that, that are so common to, to the West Coast of the United States going into a very traditional, conservative, uh, Asian uh, Theravadan monastery in a rather, a rather remote part of Thailand. So there, of course, the emphasis was on mindfulness. Lung Po Cha, the encouragement that I received from him to really observe myself, to observe what suffering is and the causes of suffering. So this, this of course, I really am grateful for having such a, an encouragement opportunity to, to, to witness, to see for myself the dukkha, the suffering, the causes of suffering, the cessation of suffering and the way of non-suffering or the Four Noble Truths. Now that teaching of the Four Noble Truths has been the kind of main interest of my life, penetrating those noble truths. And um, because I find that is, is probably the, the most clear and uh, precise uh, teaching for awakening and seeing and knowing, for enlightenment, for seeing things as they are, for knowing the truth rather than just you know, trying to develop a religious uh, life from spiritual ideals or hopes or aspirations. But the beginning, of course, religion was for me kind of inspiring and, and uh, I wanted inspiration and I had aspirations. The sense of always trying to, to find something I don't have or to, to want to have that feeling of of the, a meaning for life. There is still so much of, of uh, a self-involvement with my early uh, meditations, wanting to attain jhanas or concentrated states, wanting peace and quiet, wanting to get rid of negativity and bad thoughts, wanting purity and, and feeling guilty about impurity. And so the, the beginning, of course, the the way that I, as we all do, when we don't, when we haven't had insight yet, we operate from the maybe the the self view. I've got to get something. I'm incomplete. I'm not good enough. I'm screwed up, in other words, and I need to practice meditation and maybe devote my whole life to Buddhist monasticism in order to purify myself to hopefully become enlightened before I die. But that whole scenario is based on the sense of a permanent self, of me as a permanent kind of person that has to get something I don't have yet. 
And what I do have is I'm critical of, so I want to get rid of all the, the bad stuff, the negative stuff, and and try to make myself into a pure person, a really good person, a compassionate person, an enlightened person. And that's where, you know, so many people, you know, they, we start with that illusion. Uh, the self-illusion is the basic problem that we all have, the cause of suffering. Never seen through it, but operating. How many of you still operate from the self-illusion in this monastery? You know, where your, your own views, your own opinions, the sense of yourself, your attainments or lack of them, your ability to meditate or inability, <coughs> your purity or impurity. Have you ever questioned it? Have you ever really observed what self is? Or sakayaditi? So then the sense of I'm unenlightened, impure, trying to become enlightened. This, uh, of course, in the Four Noble Truths is the is the way to investigate the sakyaditi or the ego or the or the separate sense of self. So that's why I encourage you all during this winter's retreat to to really listen to to the ego, to what you think and feel, to pay attention, an uncritical attention, a kind of receptive welcoming of your own ego, your fears, desires, frustrations, disappointments, disillusionments. To listen, to be the listener, the observer and of the self. Because this is the only way you'll understand it. You, you're just trying to make yourself into a better person. Even if you become a better person, you still are going to suffer because you haven't cracked the illusion. You're still operating from the illusion of self. Now, I've given many talks on this, and, but this is very important because if you don't, you know, I've seen how, how difficult it is to really trust yourself to observe because the, this basic lack of trust lack of sadha or faith. Uh, you might have a lot of belief in hopes in Buddhism or, you know, in meditation, but that still can be operating from a sense of self. You know, my faith, my belief, my inspiration. Now, I'm not condemning that. It's not wrong. And I'm not putting it in terms of right or wrong, but pointing it out to be the knower, the observer, rather than the owner of, of the self. Now to create yourself, you have to, you have to think about it. You have, to, you have to believe that your thoughts are yours and your memories are what you are. That you, you know, you are this person, this body, this being, this type, this personality and so forth, that this is really me and mine and uh, this, is, this is the real world. My feelings, my body, myself, my life. Now just when I say that, listening to this sense of myself, 
That, that's, those are words, aren't they? I have to think myself, my body, my feelings, my thoughts, my memories. And so that's where there's this sense of observing yourself thinking, observing the thought process is non-thinking. And that's, that's why this listening to yourself thinking, but not with any hope of getting anything out, but just being a witness to it. Trust, trust this awareness to the point where you listen to, to the, your thoughts, your emotional habits, but you're observing them in terms of Dhamma. They, all conditions are impermanent. The self that does arise, a sense of me and mine, arises and ceases. It has no sustainability. It's unreal. We just believe we are the same person from the time we were born to the present moment. Am I the same person that went to Saba in 1964 and then went back in 19, in 2007? Was I the same person? You know, I had memories. Uh, you know, I carried memories from 44 years ago with me to uh, Semporna. But they were memories. There was, there was actually no self in it. It was a memory of Semporna in 1964. And now I'm sitting here at Amravati thinking about Semporna, remembering that's a memory. Now that which seeing memory as memory is uh, like investigating Dhamma. This is the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. Sanya kanda, uh, the memory, being able to remember. That memory is something that comes and goes. I don't sit around all day long with the same memory of Semporna. It comes and goes according to the conditions. So right now, the conditions for remembering Semporna are present. So I'm talking about <laughs> and so this is the way of reflecting on the way it is you know to be able to put into perspective uh, this the conditioned realm the conditions the physical body the, um, the sensory conscious realities that we're experiencing the uh, uh, thinking process the emotional habits the memories, the feelings, pleasure, pain, all of that are seen in this category of five khandhas and that's a convenient way of observing. It's not meant to be anything but an expedient means for putting into some easy context our ability to witness all conditioned phenomena in these five categories. Now that which is aware of the five khandhas and, and so this is, this is where words fail. That's why I can't say what it is. It has no name. It has no quality, quantity. But it's reality, isn't it? Mindfulness brings you into, brings you to the present, to pure consciousness, pure awareness, before you create yourself. Where memories arise and cease, where emotions uh, you know, of love and hate arise and cease. 
thoughts come and go. And so in this, this important emphasis that I'm making now is, is in this relationship of the unconditioned to the conditioned. So awareness, mindfulness is the, that, that, uh, that re is the reality of the unconditioned. It's a fact. It's not a memory. It's not a creation. It's not created out of ignorance. It's not, nothing to do with me and what I like or prefer or dislike. It's not about metaphysical thoughts or philosophy or even about religion. It's real. This awareness is, is the reality that we're experiencing now. This is our, the unconditioned. Then our relationship to the conditioned is knowing it, the conditioned as the conditioned. Discerning the unconditioned is this and the conditions then come and go according to other conditions. Sampurna arises in thesis accordingly to, you know, the suggestion, the memories, the people, or Ajahn Sumato, or whatever, that, that arises in thesis according to certain conditions. But when there, the conditions for Ajahn Sumato doesn't mean that I'm Ajahn Sumato 24 hours a day. It's just, it's just a convention. The reality is the awareness and then the convention arises and ceases. Now this is, this is where it's difficult to explain because you can't define reality. You can't, you can't uh, find it as an object. There's no way you can say, oh this is reality as something and then point to it. Because you are the reality. This is the reality of now, awakened attention, non-grasping of any condition, discerning, seeing. Then the conditions, whatever they might be, pleasant or unpleasant, they come and go accordingly, according to our karma, according to the weather, according to the time of day, all kinds of other things affect our emotional life, uh, you know, that we, we have no control over. How can you control the weather so that it just, you have sunny weather all the time or, you know, have a happy feeling in your mind all the time. When conditions for unhappiness are present, this is what one feels. Sadness, grief, like we've also, you know, the past, past several months with the death of uh, Tanjokun Panyananda, of the uh, Somdet Papinang, the king's uh, sister, Princess Kalyani, who came here and opened this temple in 99. And then Louis Fussell, who was uh, a good friend uh, from Bedford, was a kind of unique, eccentric character that made violins and rode bicycles and had a black belt in karate and he's kind of an incredible genius. <laughs> uh, wrote symphonies and, <laughs> and raised funds by bicycling from Land's End to John of Groats and things like that. 
uh, at eight, over 80. He was hit uh, by a car at night riding his bicycle. I am very lovely. I have very pleasant memories of Louis Fussell because he is some very endearing kind of person. But he's dead. So that death, you know, it always leaves one with this. When you hear, when I heard of Louis Fussell is dead, I didn't feel indifferent. It doesn't matter, everything's impermanent. That's a dismissal of reality, isn't it? That's an intellectual game one plays with the mind. When you hear of the death of a loved one, or that you feel like this, this is what you feel. Jody Higgs died the other day. Another good friend. So, well, everybody's got to die. What is that when I say, everybody's got to die? Don't make a scene about it. Or, when you actually hear that somebody you know Somebody you like dies, this is what you feel. Now what is it that knows that feeling? Knows the feeling of sadness or grief is like this. Then we can say, I feel grief and sad. If I was really mindful, I shouldn't suffer. Because we see grief and sadness as suffering. We think, you know, if we're really mindful, we'd never feel anything. Now you hear, Louis Fossil died, Jody Higgs died, I don't feel anything. I'm mindful. Or maybe you're just dismissing. You don't, you don't really observing what you're feeling. Maybe you didn't like them. <laughs> or you didn't know them, so it doesn't, it's just like uh, any other names of people you don't know. But the awareness, the, the observer, that's the buto. The awareness, pure conscious awareness, is not created out of ignorance, is non-personal, is not dependent on idyllic conditions to, to make you feel peaceful or happy or whatever. It's like this, when, when, when somebody you love dies, it's like this, this feeling. And so in that, I'm aware, receiving this feeling. I'm not trying to indulge in it or make it into something more or dismiss it, but receive it. So this, this unconditioned reality is a receptacle for everything. Everything belongs, you know. There's nothing that doesn't belong in your life, whatever it might be. This realm we live in is like this. We have ideals of how it should be. So we get upset by the fact that, that people are murdering each other and doing all kinds of dreadful things. But they, everything belongs, all conditions. Because it's not that we like or approve, but because that's the way it is. All conditions are impermanent and non-self. Now if you really trust in that reflection, then you begin to see non-suffering, recognize, realize non-suffering. It doesn't mean you don't feel anything or you're totally indifferent to, to the unfairness, injustice, or badness of the world around you. But you're not creating it into something more than what it is. 
We can cope with pain, with loss, with grief, with all kinds of negative states, if we understand it in terms of Dhamma, if we have this trust, this surrender, this total faith in the awareness of the moment, the unconditioned, the unborn, uncreated, Nibbana, Anatta, and it's recognizable. It's real, it's reality. And in this reality, then the conditions, according to other conditions, arise and cease. And our relationship to those conditions then is not approving or disapproving anymore, but of recognizing and discerning. Then you might think, whenever I talk like this, I always feel that somebody's going to come up and say, well, what if... You know, we're supposed to just accept evil in the world and unfairness and... I'm not saying that. Because <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, that, uh, you know, we, we do good and refrain from doing the bad. You know, within the perspective of one human existence, this individual being here, you know, whatever arises and ceases, then the discerning ability. If it's good, compassionate, kind, then uh, that's my active, how I intend to act and relate to the world. And when the aversion, negativity, hatred, resentment, fear, anger arise, I accept that equally, but I don't act on it. So there's like the sila, isn't it? It's about action and speech. And the wisdom is discerning, knowing the difference. It's not prescribed right or wrong according to, to cultural attitudes or preferences. It's intuitive to do what is right, act on what is right, and not to do what is wrong. But right and wrong are not absolute. They're relative to conditions, to other conditions. So that's where in the monastic life we have this monastic code, the Vinaya, and uh, the eight precepts, ten precepts, five precepts. All these are expedient means for developing, cultivating awareness. They're meant to help us to see, to give perspective on how to live in the world and still not be lost in it, deluded, overwhelmed, despairing because the world isn't what it should be or what we would like it to be. Even when the world is what we like it to be, we can't keep it that way, isn't it? Can't when it, when when you're having a peak moment where everything is just what you want, and we have those kind of moments. You can't sustain them; they're unsustainable. That which it sustains itself then is awareness, as you begin to trust it, and then it, it's self-sustaining. You don't have to create it; you just 
recognize it. When I forget and get carried away with, with events or emotional habits or thoughts, I've trained myself to, to remember, to recognize this is reality. These thoughts are not real. These emotions I'm having now, they are what they are, but don't create them into something more than that. So in that state of receptivity, it's also metta practice. Metta or loving kindness is not, it's, it receives everything equally, good or bad. Love or hate, right or wrong. So metta, in, in, the, in you know, the reality of metta, is, is, is awareness. Awareness and metta, they go together. It's like maybe emphasizing, slightly different. With metta, you have it's more positive concept like uh, loving kindness. Maybe it's more inspiring. But it's not sentimentality. It's not being silly, foolishly idealistic about everything. It's not saying we must love everybody equally uh, and all that. That's getting, you know, that's asking the impossible. That's an ideal. But the reality of metta is, is the, and it, the realness, what's real of metta is our ability to rest in the unconditioned awareness where the conditions can arise and cease accordingly without us trying to control, resist, try to keep or get rid of anything. So the, of the Brahma Viharas, Upeka is the fourth one. Equanimity or Ekagata. And this also is with awareness. Uh, when, when there's nothing happening, then there's epeka, equanimity. But then when, when uh, vipaka karma, our resultant karma of our lives arises and certain things happen and, and we have certain strong emotional reactions, then we need the metta, the ability to receive and, and accept what we're feeling uncritically. So even if what we're feeling is selfish and mean and nasty, it's still received. Don't even, don't even label it as selfish, mean and nasty. It's like this. You see what I mean? If I, if I have nasty feelings, if I say they're nasty, then I'm making it in, I'm, I'm giving it something. Just the word nasty makes it into something really more than what it is in the present. So this is where this uh, awareness is the only way we can, can uh, receive equally all the whole conditioned realm as we experience it. Now like a lot of people, they, you know, we're trying to, we're from a culture that's very controlling. You know, we're taught, conditioned to control things and to resist. And from my own background, cultural background, social background, it's all about controlling things and resisting. And so this is this is the this is how 
I'm culturally programmed through the American uh, kind of white middle class Protestant American cultural conditioning. Aware of that, it's a conditioning process that comes from, from you know, so our social conditioning, cultural conditioning, where the the liberation is not through conditioning but through the unconditioned. Then that then the unconditioned welcomes everything. It has no preferences. So contemplate that the the unconditioned awareness. I told somebody who the other day was advising somebody was was having problems around because they do want to control things and how how can they get rid of bad thoughts and and uh, anger and fear and all this and how how can they conquer all these these uh, frightening negative problems they have and so I suggested welcoming them. Now how does that affect you? You know, welcome to me doesn't mean approving. It's not, not it's, a, it's an attitude of receiving everything for what it is in the moment. So even the resistance or the fear or the denial or the whatever it is receiving it, welcoming it. I use the, this welcoming practice a lot because it, it, for me it works because it allows me to, to receive and accept things I don't like and don't want in my life at all. If I don't do this then I tend to, I get back into the controlling, resisting modes that I'm so conditioned to, to do. That's, those are the reactions that come, you know, that are kind of spontaneous. The reactive tendency. Something unpleasant comes, I want to push it away. Something I don't like, I want to get away from it. Some, you know, it's a feeling or emotion or worry, uh, anxiety. There's little things in one's life. So this attitude of welcoming allows me to see things in that perspective of discerning them in terms of the way it is, what arises, ceases, is not self. So welcoming is a kind of meta-practice. It's no longer discriminating, you know, about good, bad, right or wrong. It's welcoming good, bad, right and wrong. Well this is hard to understand from a black and white dualistic thinking process. So I'm not, you know, this is why it is bewildering to people because you're, we're conditioned to try to, you know, get, do the good and refrain from doing the bad, uh, resist the devil and all the evil forces, and try to make yourself into a pure and saintly being. That's my cultural programming. I've, I've been taught through cultural conditioning to resist evil, uh, try to get rid of it, destroy it, 
and try to endlessly kind of hang on to the good. And that whole scenario, you know, it's in the in the worldly life, you know, it's it's praiseworthy to do good and try to improve and make everything better and try to, you know, control the evil force, not let them take over and and uh, try to punish them or destroy them, uh, you know, pesticides, get rid of the pests, uh, get rid of the enemy. Uh, and, and we can justify atrocity now. Even the United States can justify torture because you're torturing somebody for the benefit of the rest. That's, there's a kind of logic there, isn't it? You're torturing somebody to get the information you want so that they won't hurt or harm your side. And so that's, that's understandable from the self-view and the cultural conditioning. But from the p- p- point of Dhamma, what, what happens when, we, when we're caught in this dualistic war is it just perpetuates itself. Isn't it? The world right now is at a point where, you know, anything could happen with nuclear weapons and biological, chemical warfare and there's all the endless threats to the world's population. The hatred and anger, the willingness to harm and destroy, mutilate and torture for the sake of righteousness, for getting rid of the evil forces or the enemy. So just on that level, is there any possibility in our lives? You know, it just seems to get worse and worse, uh, uh, you know, rather than better and better. So the antidote then, the way out of this dilemma of dualism is through this awareness. Because then you're you're actually awakening to reality rather than operating from the conditioned perspective. Everybody, most human beings are operating from their conditioning. That's why they do what they do. You know, their prejudices, their biases, their uh, resentments, all this is is from uh, ignorance, not understanding reality, not knowing the Dhamma, being conditioned to, to hate the enemy, to see somebody else as your enemy, identity with your own group, tribalism, religious sectarianism, the whole lot. It's all about ignorance and self-view, attachment, and then the suffering that results from that. You can trace all the suffering, the misery of this world, and all the political problems, social, economic problems due to this ignorance, attachment, and the result is dukkha. And this is like studying Paticca Samuppada, you, you, the dependent origination. You can see how, how could it be otherwise? How can there be liberation through ignorance? How can there be peace when, when you don't even know what it is? When, the inter- when you're conditioned to only fight and have wars, internal wars, 
prejudices, biases, attachments, strong views, resentments, opinions. So I really contemplate that to see, not to, it's not an eradication of conditions, but understanding, seen in perspective, knowing the way it is. So then you get back to this basic teaching, all conditions are impermanent, all Dhamma is not self. Sape Sankarani Cha, Sape Tama Anatta. There is the unborn, Atibhikave Ajatang. That's a statement the Buddha is saying, because there is the unborn, the uncreated. Now that's a statement of fact. It's not metaphysical speculation. It's not theoretical. It's a statement of reality. There, there is the escape from the born or the created because there is the unborn, uncreated. What is that for you at this very moment? What is the unborn, uncreated, the reality of now? So it's like waking, recognizing, knowing, and you can't know it through attachment to any view or opinion. Whether you consider it Buddhist or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. Even attachment to Buddhism is, is an obstruction. So, I'll leave you with this to contemplate this winter's retreat. Uh, encouragement. And to uh, remind you because we do forget. The world does impinge on us. It does make us frightened. We do have strong emotional reactions to events. That's the, that's the conditioning of the mind. You know, we all have programmed, all conditioned in our various ways. You know, there's just, you know we're, we're living together in this community. We all have our own programs our own conditioning. And you know, so we don't expect anyone to be the, you know, the, you know, the biggest, the mistakes I've made is thinking everybody should be like me. That's, you know, that's really conceited, isn't it? That you should all be like me. But we have to learn from the way we are, you know, from the conditioning that we're experiencing. But we're looking at it from this perspective of Bhutto, of Buddha, knowing Dhamma, rather than from this American monk knowing the, the Thai forest tradition, or Theravada Buddhism, or this uh, old man uh, you know, from, from the ancient generation, uh, doesn't understand the basic problems of modern life, lived away in the monasteries all these years, not up to date on the latest uh, issues, social issues and problems of society, or whatever. It doesn't matter, the generation, the gender, the, the convention. It's to the point of this whole life then is awakened awareness, enlightenment, seeing things in the light, in the true light of the way they are. And this, 
this, this paradigm of the unconditioned to the conditioned. Really explore that. To me now, the unconditioned is reality. It's not. It's not something I'm looking for or that I haven't found yet or that it's so kind of precious that you, I can only get it if I, under controlled conditions. It's recognized. It's reality. And then the relationship to the conditioned is from there rather than from me trying to become enlightened or me trying to find the unconditioned. If I'm operating from me trying to find the unconditioned, I can't do it. My ego cannot ever find the unconditioned. It's just a matter of awakening to it, recognizing. It's very simple, very direct. So I offer this for your reflection.